You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, tech stocks take a bruising. We'll discuss the sea of red in the stock market as investors brace for a more hawkish Fed. Plus, Shopify plunges after earnings. We discuss the company's revenue outlook with President Harley Finkelstein and bring you the latest on the CEO departure at YouTube. And a look at artificial intelligence and investing in it. We speak with Greylock general partner Som Batamedi. That's for more. Let's stick with these markets in the tech sector, bringing Clearbridge senior research analyst Hillary Frisch. And Hillary, you know, you've learned that one session a market does not make, but the Fed giving us a clear kind of travel direction today, right, when we think about the technology sector. How are you thinking right now when it comes particularly to software and those higher multiple tech names? Thanks very much, Ed. It's good to be here. Uh, first of all, there has, I agree with Richard, there's been a lot of speculation in this market, especially with certain components of the tech index. However, um, I have a slightly different view. Um, when we look at how we got here, um, Q4 earnings, in fact, weren't so bad. They weren't as bad as investors feared. Um, companies actually were able to constructively take down guidance for the forward year. And on top of that, most companies have actually taken a much more significant step toward profitability and improving profitability. And I think that's a big part of the reason why the average stock has rallied. The IGV software next was up 15% as of yesterday. That's almost double the S&P appreciation. And there are components of that that were up 30 to 50%. Not all of them speculative. But I agree, high interest rates are very tough for tech. Um, plus, we're entering the seasonally difficult part of the year. So it's likely we give up some of these gains, and I think that would be constructive. You know, we're in the depths of the earnings season, and, and, you know, all we can do on a case-by-case basis is look at those that beat expectations and those that miss. But as you look across software, SaaS, enterprise in particular, how are you discerning those that are struggling in this environment and those that are outdoing expectations? Sure. Well, at Clearbridge, we have a quality bias, and we try to invest in quality companies, quality management teams that are extremely well-positioned across their sector. 
Um, HubSpot is an example of that. HubSpot reported after the close it actually beat revenues by 5%. It beat EPS by 30%. The street was concerned because they announced a 7% headcount cut uh, about a week ago. And actually, they guided inline revenues going forward, and they guided EPS 50% above the street. So I would say that's an example of a quality name, which we like a lot. Um, And we try to pick leading companies in their category, companies that have, um, like HubSpot, that are expanding a product portfolio, moving up and down market, doing things to really determine their destiny beyond the markets. Hillary, we just showed a fantastic chart. In fact, I think we'll bring it up again because it was that good, showing the NASDAQ 100, a, a pretty you know, historic relative highs to the S&P 500, right? We're talking about elevated levels that go back to near its dot-com peak. My question to you based on that chart is, is where do we sit right now with tech valuations? We had a brutal sell-off in 2022. We're trying to pass valuations as part of the equation around higher rates as well. Got it. That's such a good question. Ed. Uh, not all tech is created equal. <laughs> However, um, software and enterprise tech in particular has actually been adjusting from a valuation perspective for two years, two years as of April. Currently, for software in particular, valuations stand within their pre-pandemic five and 10-year averages. And in fact, for growth equities, they're below the 10-year average, in part because uh, many of the growth contingents of, of the sector weren't as profitable. But they're becoming more profitable. So I think we've done a lot of constructive work. Um, again, the markets certainly can give back a lot of what we've gotten, but I would view those that give back as an interesting opportunity because I think at the end of the day, digital transformation and many of the things these companies are doing for our digital economy remain incredibly important. I don't think that's going away by any means. Hillary, how many of your conversations at ClearBridge and with your clients are about artificial intelligence right now? Many. <laughs> I bet. Tell me. Sure. Well, well, it's interesting. Um, we're, we're large holders of Microsoft and avid fans. Um, what's interesting about this, even though the world is incredibly focused on search and the impact of ChatGBT uh, on search, I think the impact to Microsoft in particular goes well beyond search. I think this could be a huge boon to their cloud business, their productivity application business, their development platform business. All of that accrues eventually to their cloud business. So I think this could be a leapfrogging for Microsoft in the marketplace who has never actually been seen, never gotten the credit for their technology prowess, and never been seen as a leader in important next-generation technologies, whereas AI is probably the most important next-generation technology of, of this decade. Hilary Frisch of ClearBridge, thank you so much for your time. See, we take it from those market fundamentals to AI, completely different conversation happening on Wall Street and globally for investors. And honestly, it's getting us excited. So thank you for your time. Now, shares of Shopify plunging today after earnings. 16% drop, biggest in a year. The revenue forecast for the current fiscal quarter below expectations. What's really interesting, though, at least five analysts raised their price targets on the stock despite that drop and that miss. You can see on a two-day basis kind of the picture there telling the story. Joining us now to discuss Shopify's president, Harley Finkelstein. And Harley, there's no getting away from that, right? That's a pretty severe market reaction, at least the investors in, in the context of the stock. But analysts raising price targets, what is it that you think they got wrong in their reaction, the investors, I mean? 
Well, first, before we sort of get into the reaction, let's talk about the quarter, because obviously this all came out of uh, out of our earnings release yesterday, out of, out of the print. I, I think in a, in a year, and particularly Q4 of 2022, was a quarter where performance mattered more than anything else to the street, to investors, uh, to the world, more rather than you know potential. Shopify delivered. I think we demonstrated that while commerce is moving fast, Shopify is moving much faster. On the top line, we beat. Uh, GMV was up 17% on a constant currency basis in Q4. Revenue uh, was was up um, was sixty one million dollars uh, for the quarter as, as excuse me re- revenue was up uh, to one point seven billion dollars for the quarter that's up twenty eight percent on a constant currency basis so on the top line we did really well on the bottom line we also had we were profitable we we showed uh, AOI of about sixty one million dollars and more importantly we demonstrated ex- operating expense growth actually decelerated from Q three to Q four so when I think about the last two quarters Q three and Q four I think Shopify's proven that we can we can drive improvements in our cost structure and at the same time grow revenue while still investing in critical areas. And then, you know, we, we mentioned brands like Supreme, Black & Decker, Glossier, Mattel, all coming out to Shopify. So in terms of the Q4, right. we're very proud of how we showed up there. Now, in terms of the expectation, obviously, people didn't necessarily like the guidance. We were trying to be prudent. And, and, and frankly, this morning we woke up and we saw inflation numbers came out completely different than everyone thought. We can affect macro trends. What we can do is make sure that we're building a durable company, that our products are beloved by the millions of merchants that use it. We're now 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. We're higher in other countries, but that we're building a company that is operationally disciplined and notwithstanding, obviously, the, you know, today's, today's uh, stock price change, uh, we think right. we, are, we are absolutely executing. My colleague, Jeffrey Morgan, wrote Shopify like a film that draws critics or a film that nobody loves is getting bad reviews from investors but then praise from others you know that's kind of the summary here despite the reaction you, you talked about the top line and you talked a little bit about the bottom line i know that toby was asked about this on the call there, there was a want from the street to learn a little bit more about the roadmap for profit profit throughout this calendar year can you talk about what shopify is doing to to meet its profitability targets yeah, look, we are, we're not a company that was raised on venture capital. Uh, if you think about the seven-year period uh, post-IPO in, in 2015, we were profitable, fi- profitable five out of seven out of seven years. So we're a company right. that actually has been profitable for a very long time, and we we understand the path back. In fact, we you know we were cash flow positive in Q3, cash flow positive right. in Q4, and we had AOY then. But we're also a company that takes its medicine. If you think about the layoffs that have been happening in tech the last couple of weeks, Shopify did a headcount reduction back in July of last year. So we're not a company that that has been bloated like a lot of other companies have, but we're also making sure the products that we're putting out there are, are products that have uh, that are important to our merchants. One metric yes. that got missed almost entirely uh, is our attach rate, which is now at 285 percent. The attach rate, which is effectively revenue divided by GMV, is a proxy for the usage of of, of our products by our merchants. So remember, we have right. small businesses that come to Shopify. We also have a lot larger merchants that are coming to Shopify as well. I mentioned Black and Decker and Mattel and Supreme on the call yesterday. So we have all these different growth vectors, not to mention once they come into Shopify, we're not just helping them with e-commerce, we help them with physical retail, we're giving them capital. We gave about $400 million of cash advances in the quarter. That's about, we've done about $4.8 billion of cash advances total since the capital program came to be. We're doing things like audiences to help with things like return on ad spend and helping them reduce the cost of customer acquisition. Shopify is very much becoming the retail operating system. And this isn't something that we're hoping investors you know, trust us and, and you'll see in the future, we're doing that right now. And, and, and the performance, I think, was indicated by, by the print yesterday. 
Hey, Harley, we just have about 15 seconds, but what's your assessment of the health of your user base, your customers and also others in terms of the consumer read through? Well, this is where I get excited because if you look actually at the U.S. business registrations, the last two years have been the highest business registrations of the last 10 years. So that's on the merchant side. On the consumer side, the consumer is strong. You know, we had $200 billion of GMV in 20, 2022. That's three times 2019. And if you, on Wednesday, when, when U.S. retail sales came out, it surged. I think it was up 3% in January. It was anticipated to be up 1.8%. So the, US, yeah. the, the consumer in the world is strong. Merchants are strong. And Shopify is absolutely the entrepreneurship company. The retail operating system for the future of, of, of business, and we're, we're happy and proud of, of what we're doing. We'll keep we'll keep doing this. Harley Finkelstein, Shopify president, we're grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, now turning to another name that we're watching, and that's YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki stepping down from the role after nine years running Google's video streaming division, handing the reins to her top lieutenant Neil Moen. Joining us with more is Bloomberg's Mark Berg, and also the author, of course, of Like, Comment, Subscribe inside YouTube's chaotic rise to world domination. Mark, this is a big moment for YouTube. It's a big moment that some people have been expecting for a while. Uh, okay. I, I'd say that the pick of succession has surprised no one who's been tracking YouTube and Google. Uh, Neil Mohan has been at uh, YouTube in the role of chief product officer yeah. since 2015. His role has expanded in those eight years. He actually worked with, with Susan Wojcicki before that on Google Ads. So he's a known entity, certainly for advertisers and a little bit more so for, for uh, YouTube creators. Is Susan leaving YouTube at a time where they're pressured and challenged, or is she leaving them in sort of robust, rude health? Uh, let's say both. I mean, you know, I think part of Susan's legacy, certainly on the business side, has been taking this asset. Uh, in 2014, when she joined YouTube, was this huge commercial success, or sorry, rather a huge like uh, pop culture success, right? But it had never really proven itself to be profitable. Uh, they've gone through like a series of crises around the business side, but in the past five years, that uh, ad business, at least from what they disclose, uh, has more than tripled. Uh, and right. you know, they're moving into TV streaming. Um, they've they're struggling a little bit on competing with Spotify, but their big threats now are TikTok, uh, which is a clearly a, a much bigger existential threat, uh, and then just the larger threats that Google has on the regulatory side. Like That's very unclear about YouTube's future. So some saw this coming. This is what uh, Susan herself had to say in a blog post that was published uh, on Thursday morning about why the time is right for me. I feel able to do this because we have an incredible leadership team, clearly a reference as well to Neil, who's going to take the reins. What do we know about him, him as a leader, as, a, as an operator? He's incredibly googly. Uh, I, mean googly. That, I, I mean that in the sense that he's been there since 2008. Uh, you know, people will talk to me about this. this. This actually does have some value in the sense of Google's a very political place. And in order to get things done, you know, YouTube is a division that has to fight for resources with other with Google Cloud, with Pixel, right? Uh, and certainly having someone who's been so experienced with the company is an asset. He's not uh, a media executive, right? He never worked in media before, um, like on, on programming. They had Robert Kinsel, who was their Hollywood chief, who left was earlier this year. And I think that was his replacement was another person who worked on Google Ads. Uh, and I think it's a clear indication here, you know, YouTube has dropped their strategy to compete with Netflix and Amazon right. Prime. They're like all in on becoming just the pre premier sort of ad ad based destination and, and competing with TikTok. 
before we let you go, what did, we ref- what did you kind of reflect on in your book about Susan? What did you learn about her as you went about writing? Yeah, Susan's a bit of a cipher. Like, unlike some, uh, say, Sheryl Sandberg, she has not built a public profile. Most people out in the street don't know who she is. I think that's been advantageous to, to YouTube in, in some ways. They've been able to sort of avoid some of the scrutiny that Facebook has. Uh, I think what will be really interesting going forward is she is described by people who work at Google as one of the very few humans on the planet that has a relationship uh, with the Google founders who are, right. as we know, have left the company but are still the majority shareholders. And now as Google's having this big existential moment around AI, um, she's an important person there. And, and you know she's clearly still consulting, but um, her absence, will, I think, will be felt. All right, Bloomberg's Mark Bergen, of course, a Bloomberg reporter, but also author of that book that you can check out. I'm sure you can get it anywhere. It's been out since September, and I myself will be reading it. Like, comment, subscribe. Inside YouTube's chaotic rise to world domination. Now, something else we're keeping our eye on very closely, changes coming to an app near you. Both Meta and Spotify are launching new features. Meta's Instagram rolling out broadcast channels, which let users send text or photo updates directly to followers. The idea is to offer another way to share posts without having to put them on a potentially cluttered main Instagram feed. Meanwhile, Spotify will launch a TikTok-esque vertically scrolling feed next month at their Stream On event in Los Angeles. Spotify executive will announce the latest features and upgrades coming to the audio platform. The move toward a TikTok-like feed comes as the company seeks to attract more of those Gen Z listeners. Now, coming up, we'll bring you the latest news in the land of VC-backed startups from hydrogen and fintech to edtech, and we're keeping it global. As we head to break, I'm watching shares of DoorDash, a pretty strong forecast for earnings, kind of beating expectations, cost-cutting efforts at that company really seem to be taking hold. DoorDash anticipating EBITDA of $120 million to $170 million in the fiscal first quarter. Clearly, the street likes it. Shares up 6.5% in after hours. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
Time now for the VC roundup, starting with Baidu, which is in negotiations with investors, including TPG, to raise more than $500 million. The Indian edtech startup is hoping to keep its valuation steady at about $22 billion during that financing. That's according to sources. Now, negotiations are ongoing. It's unclear if the prospective investors will go ahead with a deal. And Baidu's in talks separately with creditors to renegotiate an agreement governing a $1.2 billion loan that's in breach of covenants. Sunfire is in talks with investors to raise about 200 million euros in a new financing round that would put a 1 billion euro valuation on the hydrogen startup. That's according to German newspaper Handelsblatt, who cites sources. Similarly here, though, discussions are still ongoing and talks yet to be finalized. And over in Pakistan, fintech startup Adelphi, which helps consumers and smaller businesses obtain loans, raised a $7.5 million funding round. It's a sign of life for the South Asian country's VC market after it dried up with a global decline in tech stocks last year. The round was led by Kotu Ventures, Chimera Ventures, Fatima Goba Ventures and Zane Capital. I think there's hype and there's substance, and we try to separate the two. Hype comes and goes. It kind of creates this crazy animal spirits. You can't control it, and so for the better of our part, we try to ignore what happens with hype and focus on the substance. And when it comes to substance, it is just stunning to see some of the results in generative AI already. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. And that was part of our conversation with Sonia Huang of Sequoia Capital, speaking with us yesterday about, you guessed it, artificial intelligence. And sticking with AI, can Bing take over Google? That's what Microsoft seems to think. It's reported initial findings after a week of testing new AI additions to its Bing search engine with users from more than 169 countries. The results? AI-powered answers have earned the approval of around 71% of testers. And chat in particular has proven a popular addition that's deepened engagement, according to the company. Now, people are also using the chat-capable Bing beyond specific queries for, quote, more general discovery of the world and for social entertainment. It's a story we've just got to stick with. So let's turn to Greylock, who've been investing in AI and machine learning for a little while now in companies like Adept, Inflection, Gretel, and many more. You see those names of their portfolio companies on the screen. Bring in Greylock, general partner, Som Modamedi. So I don't even know where to start at the moment. Every day there's a new headline. But you heard Sonia talk about the sort of the hype and the reality. Where are you on the hype reality spectrum right now for, in terms of what we're seeing in real world deployment of, of AI? Ed, first, thanks for having me on. Excited here to talk to you about AI. As you mentioned, we've been investing in AI at Greylock for over a decade. And we believe the shift that we're seeing now around generative AI is equal in importance to the earlier shifts from cloud to on-premise software and the shift from desktop to mobile. I think every company is going to be an AI company, and everything we do at work and how we live is going to be transformed by AI. So I met out thinking a lot of this is real. One mental model that my partner, Reid Hoffman, and I wrote about to think about how AI might impact our lives is this concept of a copilot for everybody. So GitHub Copilot is an initial copilot product that's used by developers that helps developers write better code. Imagine a world where copilots get built for lawyers, helping them write better briefs, for doctors, helping them do medical diagnoses, for salespeople, helping them sell software. 
I think if we're having this conversation three years from now, all of us will be using these products that feel like co-pilots in the way we work and live. So, some context for the audience. So Reid Hoffman, your partner, he, he's kind of one of the founding members of OpenAI. He is on the board. He invested through his own means, his own charity or charitable funds. But, but I know you guys track what OpenAI is doing really closely. We'll get onto your portfolio companies. But for you right now, who or what is leading the way in artificial intelligence? I think you have to start with OpenAI and give them immense credit. What they've done with the transformer model architecture with products like DALI, GPT-3, ChatGPT, new models that we think will come out later this year, they're really at the front lines of bringing these technology to lots of application developers and users. And as you know, they expose these in APIs. And we're fortunate to be uh, involved with a number of companies that are leveraging those APIs on the text and the image side to build products that solve different business use cases and consumer use cases. You said that, to your mind, every company will be an AI company. Could you just explain a little bit more what you meant? I think if you look at the capabilities of these models on the generation side, whether they're generating text, image, video, code, on the classification and discriminative side, looking at a portfolio of loans and predicting what portfolio, which loan is going to default, you're going to see every business have to have an AI strategy. And we're seeing that already. You talked about Microsoft and the release of their new products around Bing. Google announced Bard and is fast to catch up. There are a number of early stage companies that are leveraging AI in different ways. If you don't have an AI strategy, you're going to miss a very important computing wave. This is February of 2023. November of 2022, ChatGPT kind of gets released to the world. Yet you, you, there are investors like you that have been at this for a while. I, my question is, how do you feel about that? You know, that the, the, now there's a broader interest, but I guess you've been trying to drum up interest in this well before November of 2022. Uh, absolutely. As I said, we've been investing in AI for more than a decade, and we can talk about some of our companies sure. are scaling today and having real impact. But I think ChatGPT was an important moment. I've heard it described as the iPhone moment for generative AI. And I think the power of that interface and the way that end users could actually use it in the real world, it felt like magic. And I think it showed everyone how AI can be used. But as you pointed out, Ed, we've been investing in AI for a long time. So for example, we're investors in a company called Cresta. Cresta is a generative AI company that services contact centers. So if you call Verizon today, Verizon contact center agents are using generative AI in the way they interact with you, leveraging the technology Cresta has built. And that's just one of many examples. So, so you brought up that, that particular name. Let's, we'll bring up on the screen uh, your portfolio companies. How do you value them accurately? You know, look at those names you're invested in. Um, you know, how do they make money is on the top line one question. But actually what we're being asked more often is valuations, valuations, valuations. Absolutely. So it's hard to talk about valuations in a general sense. But what I would say is at Greylock, we're early stage investors. We invest in a small set of companies and we invest with a 10 year plus time horizon. Right. Depending on the business, there are different ways to think about valuation. Some of these businesses are enterprise companies. So Crest does a SaaS company. It leverages AI to build its SaaS product. Same with Abnormal Security, a cybersecurity company that leverages AI. These are durable business models that have stood the test of time and we think will lead to high growth, profitable, enduring businesses. I wanted to ask you about Snorkel because I know that you have published blog posts yourself, gone on podcasts to kind of use them as an example. As a case study, how do you discern 
these startups that are promising versus the start. You know, what I'm hearing from venture capitalists and your peers is, well, I'm getting 100 decks through my desk. About 1% of them are actually focused on AI. The rest just claim to be. So using that as a case study, explain to me how you've identified this as something with real promise. Absolutely. So when we make an investment, we look at two things. One is, what is the problem that the entrepreneur and team is trying to solve? And what type of market opportunity does it represent? And the second is, do they have a durable compounding technical advantage in solving that problem? Snorkel is a great example. So Snorkel is a data science and machine learning platform for the enterprise. It enables large banks and insurance companies and government agencies to take advantage of all of these advancements we're seeing in AI. When we first met the team, we were blown away by this team's background, having come out of Stanford, having published a number of interesting articles and results around ways AI can be used in enterprise contexts. And fast forward to today, they're serving many of the largest Fortune 500 accounts and enabling them to take something that feels like ChatGPT, but actually use it on top of their own data and in use cases that they can have in production today driving business value. I want to ask you a bit about the read-through to enterprise and sort of broader software companies. There's this idea, right, that Microsoft may give Azure an advantage because those customers using Azure can get access to the OpenAI APIs. So that makes it more attractive. Do you think that makes sense as a business proposition for the bigger tech companies? I think all of the cloud players are going to need to have an AI story. I think the relationship that Microsoft has with OpenAI is a really interesting and smart one. We're going to see similar, similar products get released by Google, by AWS. That would be my prediction. And I think as you serve the next wave of applications that leverage AI as a cloud provider, you have to have AI capabilities built in. And you better believe that that's going to be a dimension on which customers are going to discern. We have to talk about ethics and we have to talk about concern. The biggest concern is accuracy when it comes to generative AI. Your take, please. I'm glad you brought this up. And this is why I'm so happy that we have things like ChatGPT being these products actually in the real world so that end users can interact with them and these problems can get surfaced. That wouldn't happen if these things were being built in the laboratory. I'm confident that these things in the real world with the right guardrail and the human feedback systems, we are going to see dramatic improvement and we're going to see models and products that are trustworthy, speak the truth, and act with high integrity. The phrase AI arms race comes up every day now. Is that a fair way of describing what we're seeing in the market right now? I think it is. I, if you believe, as I do, that AI is a wave on the same level of impact as the shift to mobile or the shift to cloud, everything's up for grabs. We're seeing innovation and disruption everywhere. You talked earlier about search. Search right. is one of many markets where we're seeing a lot of disruption. We saw what Microsoft did with Bing, Google announcing BARD and catching up. Newer companies like Neva in our portfolio that are building AI-native approaches to search, we're going to see it disrupt every market. All right, Greylock, General Partner, Son Motamedi, thank you so much for your time and taking us through your take on what's happening in AI. Now, coming up, Tesla is recalling hundreds of thousands of vehicles. We'll tell you why next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice 
or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Tesla is recalling hundreds of thousands of vehicles after U.S. authorities said its automating driving technology could increase the risk of a crash. The automaker's so-called full self-driving beta system, quote, may allow the vehicle to act unsafe around intersections. That, according to NHTSA. Now, joining us for more is Bloomberg's Graham Starr, an editor on our global business team. Graham, let's get it out there early. This recall requires an over-the-air update fix, right? But what is the issue here? That's right. So Tesla will be issuing these over-the-air software updates by April 15th, according to NHTSA. Um, What's at issue is these cars are not behaving as up to the standards, uh, the safety standards that NHTSA wants at intersections. It is going straight at lanes that are turn only. It is uh, having uh, inconsistent speeds when uh, uh, speed limits change. It is stopping for extended periods of time at intersections. Uh, everything that, that this company, that uh, the agency says uh, could lead to a collision. And, and so they are issuing this recall. Um, the recall does not mean that cars are being sent back Tesla is issuing a software update uh, that they said should fix this issue. Uh, The company also says this has not caused injuries or deaths. Uh, We're showing a tweet from Elon Musk. Uh, Of course, as we always do, we reached out to (laughs) Tesla for comment. Uh, They did not reply. I personally reached out to Elon Musk, Martin Viecker and the IR team. Uh, No one replied. But later he tweeted, definitely the word recall for an over-the-air software update is anachronistic um, in his view. You can see there also the shares eventually responding. Took a while, but down 5.7%. What do we know about the vehicles impacted, Graham? Uh, the the vehicles impacted right now. NHTSA is saying it's a it's a uh, rare issue, but it is uh, uh, about uh, you know a few dozen models of uh, Model S, Model Three, Model X, and Model Model Y vehicles between 2016 and 2023. So any Tesla vehicle uh, produced in the last uh, seven years um, is you know could be considered part of this recall. And I do recommend that if you own one of these vehicles, to go on the the NHTSA website and see if you're vehicle is affected. You know, a lot of the, 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 our audience out there on Twitter, uh, on other social platforms like Instagram, they're saying, you know, why are you guys jumping on this? It's a software fix. Why are you calling it a recall? Mm-hmm. Well, according to NHTSA, it is a technical recall. But the other point that we, we make in our reporting, right, is that Elon Musk has talked about how central FSD is to Tesla's valuation. You know, that, that's what he's talked about in the past. Absolutely. This, this is really uh, about where he sees the company. And as we've reported before, uh, 
what is marketed as full self-driving or autopilot often comes into conflict with the reality of the situation. The company itself says on its website that full self-driving and autopilot should not be enabled without driver's attention, that the driver should always keep their hands available to take over. Um, and, and this marketing and, and even the labeling of, of full self-driving has had people and, and critics and agencies complain about this. Uh, separate, uh, you know, this is also part of a, an ongoing investigation that NHTSA has had into the company's autopilot and full self-driving technology. So this is a real risk for the company should this not uh, sh should this have any more faults and and be something that the the U.S. government is is investigating a little bit more seriously. Bloomberg's Graham Star, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. Now, Snapchat user growth is accelerating, with the app now seeing 750 million monthly users. Joining us for more is Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. And Alex, this was kind of the big takeaway from their investor day. The stock kind of reacted positively in the sense that it paired losses, but all told, closing down pretty significantly. Why is that 750 million figure important? Yeah, and I was down in Santa Monica at the Investor Day in person today, and when they shared that number, it was clear the market uh, saw a little bit of excitement on the user growth side. If you think of a social media company, there's two pillars, right? There's users and growth, and there's ad revenue. Well, ad revenue's been really challenged, so it's a good little number for Snap to be able to show up and say, hey, look, our growth is not only good, strong, it grew 25% in the last 10 months, but it's actually faster than the entire year prior to that when it grew at 20%. Now, if you look at the stock today, when that news came out, there was a bit of a jump up. About two hours later um, was when the CFO took the stage and then started talking about some of the financial bit of the business, which seemed to be a uh, bit more yes. disappointing. Right. And, and, you know, we're showing that the share performance on a 12 month basis is still down 73 percent or so over the last 12 months. What did what did the CFO have to say about the advertising environment right now? Because, you know, I'm not personally using Snap anymore. I did when I was younger, but it still all comes down to ads when it comes to social media. It absolutely does. And their ad business has had a lot of pressure, not only from macro issues, but because of the changes that Apple made that made ads harder to track and target folks. But he basically uh, took a look at past growth in terms of revenue, which the majority of their revenue comes from their ad business. They've been growing at a really incredibly strong clip until this past quarter. In the fourth quarter, revenue was flat for the first time ever. And they've guided that revenue is expected to fall 2 to 10% in the next quarter, the first ever decline. So the CFO was basically talking through with a lot of caveats saying, you know, if we come back to a stronger macro environment, if we are able to resolve some of the issues and implement some of the tech fixes that they're putting in place this quarter to improve their ad business, then we can return to growth. But as we saw from some of the analysts and investor questions when we were there in Santa Monica, there is some skepticism around how quickly that macro environment is going to improve. Evan Spiegel, the CEO, fielded one of those questions about the macro environment and he said look things are still bad but they're leveling off they're not getting better but at least we have some bad stability in terms of where marketers are spending online so let's throw it forward snap has this target of reaching a billion users right that's the next step up how does it get there 
It was really interesting. They said the majority of that next billion, which they think they can do in the next two to three years, they will be able to get there through growth outside of their developed markets. So not North America, not Europe, but the rest of the world, as they call it, of onboarding new users who have never used Snapchat before. In those developed areas, they're really focused on basically young people. They said they're one of their key growth drivers in existing strong markets is to be one of those first favorite apps, as they called it, for people who newly get their smartphones. They already hit about 75% of users between the age of 13 and 18 in their developed market. So it seems like as those folks age into having a smartphone into their hands, they're trying to make sure that they're downloading Snapchat at the same time. All right, Bloomberg's Alex Barinka, thank you. On the ground there at Snaps Investor Day down in L.A. In the 1980s and 90s, John McAfee was a Silicon Valley icon. But after he sold his company and basked in his riches, things took a dark turn. I will not allow them to imprison me and shut my voice down. This season on Foundering will retrace the life of John McAfee. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get more, do a deep dive into the self-destruction of this Silicon Valley icon and bring in Bloomberg's Jamie Tarabay, host of this particular Foundering podcast series. You spent 15 months working on this, Jamie. What were your conclusions? One of the things that we were really struck by, and it was also a big question that we got about why we even wanted to do this in the first place, is that by, by his end, John McAfee was practically irrelevant, someone who the conspiracists really kind of looked at. But when he was in his 40s, at a really you know, sort of formative time for a lot of tech founders, he was someone who was disruptive to the industry. He was someone who became very successful, very wealthy, very quickly. And one of the things that we noticed and we paid attention to was the choices that he made once he kind of came into that wealth. And a lot of, there's so many similarities between him back then and, uh, and some of the tech moguls that we see today. He surrounded himself with enablers. He, ma- he realized, he recognized the outsized influence he had. And he made a lot of choices, not all of them good, in the way that he was going to sort of deploy that influence. Jamie, walk us through what we can expect in this series. What do we learn along the way about the man, about his business, about the controversies as well? He was an eccentric Silicon Valley kind of guy. Right. Uh, he basically began, he, he came to our attention with the McAfee antivirus software program. And we begin telling by telling that story. And it's, it's very striking because it, it is the journey of a man who he goes around the world. He works as a computer programmer and then he winds up in Silicon Valley and he basically stumbles along um, in this new technology that is evolving that we, the rest of the world is still only just learning about. Um, what he does with it, uh, the decisions that he makes, he's, he's impulsive, he, right. uh, he's a very brilliant man, but he's also, he also has a lot of ego and he also enjoys the, uh, the attention that comes from that. There's a, we spoke to a lot of people that haven't spoken publicly before yes. and we uncovered 
uncovered a lot of things that uh, that he essentially fabricated or embellished over his lifetime. Bloomberg's Jamie Tarabay, thank you so much. And you can go and listen to the podcast, the first episode on the early days of John McAfee's career. And the first warning signs is out today. Now, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget, tune in tomorrow. Bloomberg's Technology Twitter Spaces every Friday, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. San Francisco. We may have another special guest, but wrap this week's news. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.